Hey. Look at us. We are the button. Hey, I pushed the button. I pushed the button. Yay. <laughs> There's a... See? Is it Animaniacs? Is that the... the no. Or is it Looney Tunes? It was Looney Tunes that had this character. That was like, I want to push the button. I want to push the button. I want to say that sounds like Animaniacs to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The the new uh, Animaniacs uh, series that they rebooted is actually quite awesome. Oh, yeah. A lot of really good stuff in there. I mean, the original one was like notorious for being way smarter than it had any business being. Yeah. In addition to being just silly and crazy. Um, and the new one is really, really good. That's awesome. I'm copying. Yeah, they definitely captured that magic, but then updated it, you know? Nice. I remember getting really excited about the. Now, this is this is dated. It's probably been 10 years since they tried to do the reboot on broadcast TV of The Muppet Show. And I was really excited about it because I yeah. thought I liked The Muppet Show. And so I watched the new, I think they had like three episodes before they're like, look, that sucked. We're going to yeah. stop doing this. But I turned it on and man, I got so triggered watching Kermit and Miss Piggy because they have a ridiculously abusive relationship. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, no, these are my parents. We're all just this supposed to laugh at it. Awful. <laughs> yeah. She just smacked him across the room for no reason. Yeah. That's not funny. That's yeah. fu- it's awful. What? Ooh. <laughs> so reboots don't always. Uh... I, I feel like ever since Jim Henson uh, passed. The Muppets have been a little soulless mm-hmm. um, that for the most part, they don't they they're they feel very corporate owned. And the the Muppet movie just called The Muppets, the one with Jason Siegel. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. But then they made a sequel and it was just horrible. Um, and it, that's kind of what's happened every time is they'll come uh, out with something good and then people see dollar signs and then they just with the Muppets yeah. again. Have you watched the, the, the Melissa McCarthy dirty Muppet movie? No, I heard it was terrible. Was it any good? I don't know. I want to watch it. Cause it sounds oh. kind of, even if it's bad, it could be wonderful. Yeah, it's possible. I, I totally get that. I heard people say like, this should have been great and it didn't work. Oh, um, but um yeah, but it could be worth watching. It was so, kind hey, of an awkward wanna... time to try to figure out what comedy should be doing, too. Yeah. Like culture. You want to um, you wanna start the show? Start a show? What? <laughs> my collar ready? Uh, what is my collar doing? Okay. It looks, looks great. Hello, and welcome to the Enlightened Couch Potato Show. My name is Nicholas Rave, and this is... Adrienne Gunn. And what do we do here, Adrienne? We do TV so hard, we just <laughs> drop. Balls deep, basketballs deep into the yeah, into yeah. the moviness. These are mm-hmm. if you're watching them, <laughs> squeezing. Those are basketballs. Um, they're small. They're small basketballs. They're like Nerf balls. You don't squeeze softballs. Nerf balls for uh, yeah. You can squeeze a Nerf ball like that for those little basketball hoops that you put on the door. You know. Yeah. 
anyway, we I saved it. <laughs> what we like to do here is we appreciate the television and movies can be transformational. We say that we can help people figure out how to watch movies and television for maximum psychological and personal development or even spiritual development, which is what is the other way one can say that or TV deeply. That, that is, is our aim, our mission and our quest Yeah, to figure out how to suck the most value out of movies and TV because you're going to be watching it anyway. So you might as well have it value. change you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. It. We're in a Phew. mood today. So um, I uh, how are you doing, Adrienne? What's going I, on? I have been I've been feeling this sort of thing. A couple a couple things. So we are now we just had the like anniversary of a year of everything shutting down. For me, that was the 13th. Uh, I did a last show of. My other podcast show, I think, was the 13th. Which was live and in person, right? Two live in persons, two people I hugged because we could. And those were my last hugs for like six months. Oh, boy. <laughs> and yeah, so it's an interesting thing to, to come around and, and feel what it's like to have been to be a human. Everybody's sort of like reflecting on what's shifted and what's changed. And I found myself feeling a little sad to not not be feeling more inspired or creative or something. There's just there's that. And then this last two weeks, I've been in a lot of pain. My back and neck, my neck and shoulders had pain first and then that threw out my back. And so I've been Mm. trying to unravel that. But I had a very emotionally healing experience listening to some music today. And I think enlightened couch potato can cross contextualize to music as well. Yeah. Well, in the sense that, that dropping in and allowing a healing experience to happen. So this needs some preface preface of, uh, I have had challenges with the artist Brandy Carlisle. And a lot of my friends really, really love her music. Uh, I don't know who this is. Can you give yes. me some? Well, she, gosh, um, I think she's sort of rock folk, folk rock, pop singer. Okay. A bit yodely, sort of epically dynamic songs. I don't, I mean, like, I can't exactly. There's a song of hers playing in my head. There's the song, The Story, which is pretty great. And she, she's she been uh, like, I don't know. She's a big deal for a lot of people. Okay. okay. At one That's point, enough. Yeah. At one point, she wasn't. She was just a person named Brandy Carlisle who ended up being an opener at this show that I last minute was asked to be the sound engineer for. Oh. So back in 2003, when so there there were music festivals, South by Southwest is very popular in Austin. There used to be a um, music fest. Northwest used to be a really big deal in Portland, Oregon, and it was kind of dying. They'd shifted it for three years. And last minute, Music Fest Northwest calls me and says, we had somebody pull out. You're on our emergency call list. 
can you show up at like Henry's pub or whatever and mix the whole day? It's a whole night. It's one of those gigs where they like somebody just leaves a cart and you assemble the PA system and then everybody shows up and you're just like, figured it out. What's happening? How many people like, you know, bag full of mic stands and mics. And you're just like, we, so that night was a songwriter stage. Cool. And I did hear rumors that the last guy was this Brian so-and-so who had written many of the songs on Nora Jones' Grammy-winning album. I did end up meeting Jonathan Rice that year. This was a couple of years before. It was like Jonathan Rice and everybody freaking loves him. But the first person who showed up as I'm you know, setting up the PA drove down from Seattle uh, with this bald, grungy, really stinky sound engineer. And it's not necessarily common to show up with a sound engineer, but but here's this female performer songwriter. And I get it. Like, I'm a singer songwriter at the time. And I'm like, yeah, a lot of sound engineers suck. I'm not one of them, but but she doesn't know this. And I also know how to work with uh, another sound engineer, a mixing engineer, and I'll be the house engineer. And there's like an there's like a there's an etiquette to that kind of thing that I know about because not only was I a sound engineer for a while, I was a sound engineer for a while. And then I got trained professionally at one of the schools that teaches you how to do that. And this is me like two, three years after that. So she brings a sound guy and I set things up and he decides to start mixing her sound check really, 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 really loud, Mm. super painful loud. And she keeps sound checking this, yodely thing and it's just like yodely yodely over and over and over again now in these kinds of like run and gun shows like no one's a fucking superstar sound check is like 10 minutes can you hear yourself in the monitors okay what's your style i got it what do you what's your arc someone else is doing that we just need to like and it's my job as the house person to take care of the whole venue now i'm contracted by like i'm three levels like it's my responsibility to several different people, people on the stage, people in the audience, people in the club and people who like hired me for the festival, all sort of faceless humans, but it's my responsibility. I'm the only one that's there and it's crazy, painfully loud. So I try to get the sound engineer to bring it down. It's like, I appreciate she's awesome. Can you just bring it down? It's a bit too loud for the space right now. And he's like, no, and ignoring me. And I don't know if it's like, oops, I have boobs. I don't know. I just assumed it wouldn't be that way. And so I went up to her. (laughs) I was like, so I, I dig what you're doing. Your engineer is mixing too loud. Would you be willing to ask him to bring it down a little bit? And she told me to shut the fuck up. And sit the fuck down. Wow. Yeah. And so I was like, hmm, alrighty. And, you know, this is like 25 minutes of the same yodel, like longer. Mm. So I was like, I was like, I just kind of want this to be done. So I'm like, this will be fine. This will be fine. This set will be over. It'll be too loud. And then I'll mix the rest of the night. And it's going to be awesome. Now, what I didn't know is that there was a thing going on, apparently, in songwritery world, because both Jonathan Rice and this Brian dude, they like literally from the stage, like yelled, shut the fuck up to audience members. And it's like, if you want to have a conversation, go downstairs. We're playing music here. I didn't know that there was this vibe of you just get to be a dick from the stage. Right. Wow. Cool. Learning new things. And 
And at this point in my life, I have also been an asshole to some people and, but it didn't work well for me. So mm. I was learning how to be like, maybe I shouldn't be an asshole. Anyway, yeah. I survived the night. This, the, the last four or five acts are beautiful. I'm like, Jonathan Rice, what a lovely kid with a Scottish accent for no reason. I mean, he was in Scotland for some time. I was like, okay. So I ended up listening to his music at some point. He's like pretty good for him. Uh, life goes on, I think. But then two years later, I am stealing internet in a casino lobby in Vegas because I live there and I'm driving my truck around to install like television service for people. And I hear over this Vegas casino loudspeakers, this goddamn yodel fucking song. And like ch- chills, like my, like my, the hairs on my neck, like I'm in a horror movie and like, why, what is happening? And I remembered her name. So I go like, look her up and she had been signed to Columbia uh. and I'm like, what the fuck? How, what? Uh, additional info. In the next year or so, when I lived in Bellingham and I'd met a bunch of like local bands and we would like go, have you met Brandy Carlyle? And they're like, oh, yeah. Uh. Yeah. And so to hear, to know that I wasn't the only one that was like, God, she's a mm, son of a whew. And, and, and she's like, so she signed to Columbia and then she's singing duets with the fucking Indigo Girls. And she's suddenly in these movies like as singer and she's just killing it. And, and all of my friends are like, Oh my God, I love her so much. And I'm just, I can't get over the PTSD about like, wait a second, two things. She was fucking mean to me. Like yeah. that lit, like actually happened to me to my own life. And she's killing it. She's not only killing it, but um, she's also, Seems to be inspired and has some of the same influences. The band she has sounds like the band I want. Why is she living my life? And she got to be fucking mean. And that worked for her. And I was so livid about it for a lot of years. And then a couple of my friends who love me quite well, they're like, you know, she's actually kind of good. I really actually like the song. I get it. that This horrible encounter happened for you and i don't know why people can be asses some days and still have shit work out for them uh so it took me what is that that's a lot of years ago right it took me a bunch of years and i about a month ago i wrote to my friends i'm like okay i think i'm ready what are your favorite brandy carlisle songs i just i think i'm willing to to attempt to listen to hear with an open heart what people love and so they sent me songs and i set up a playlist that amazon kept kept like forgetting it's like you have zero songs in here and i was like no i have nine anyway so i fixed that my songs were in there today i decided i'm gonna batch cook and listen to these songs and so i did and i think it was like the third song in there there is a song where she is actually kind of singing a a request for forgiveness about it's i think it's the that isn't me song and uh like did i like i don't remember the the words at this point and this is the one that would sometimes come on on my alarm clock and i would slam it (laughs) down i was like shut them up 
But here, that song comes on and it's like this sort of quest of an apology. So I do the wrong thing that I mess shit up, da, 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 that sort of thing. And as she's singing, I'm like, this, a lot of this sounds like stuff I would sing about. And I started getting shivers and a bit choked up. And all the while through these nine songs, I keep getting ideas for other songs that I want to write. So I kept like pausing it and like, so my notebook has like two pages full of inspired ideas of things I want to write. And I'm still sitting with that bit of jealousy of the, the different choices that I made that kind of slaughtered and eviscerated the belief that I had in myself. Like she and I had the same dream. Like I've read some articles from, from what, what she dreamed for her life and was able to create. And I was like, no, that's what I wanted to do. And I can hear the literally the same singer influences and the fucking choices that she's got, like the punk and the country that's showing up in her music. I'm like, that's my band. That's fine. That's fine. So I'm like still sitting with where to live in this in a different universe. There is an Adrienne who may have had a similar path and I'm doing this thing now, which is great. I can't say that I don't have regrets. And I imagine, or I wonder if you have any of these moments where you're looking at someone else's life and going, why the heck is that not me? What happened? What's different? <clears throat> but I did have I... feeling it's epic. Her songs are fucking great. Can I drop a couple thoughts before I answer that question? Oh, yeah. So the first thing is, uh, th this is just a quick thought. Um, there are lots of assholes that are successful. Right. So that just means that being nice is not a prerequisite to being successful. But <laughs> I truly believe there are no assholes who are happy. Uh -huh. So being nice being a good person, <laughs> having compassion for others is not a prerequisite to success. Sure. But it is a prerequisite to a life worth living. Yeah. I do know that entertainment did change in the mid-aughts. Hmm. So there used to be a kind of rule that as a female musician, in order to be respected, you had to kind of walk in quite brassy to get your shit done. So I can't necessarily blame her for just modeling what had worked for other people at the time. Sure. But sure. there was there was sort of a changing of the guard of how assholy one can be. Mm. And that happened somewhere in the mid early 2000s. Well, my argument would be even if that's how everybody else got things done, that doesn't mean you have to get things done that way. And I'm sure that there are examples of performers um, successful and unsuccessful and female and not female who found another way who weren't yeah. assholes and still were able to get people to listen to them. Like I've heard Dolly Parton is quite a lovely person. Yeah. Um, as an example. And I'm pretty sure she was that way the whole time, <laughs> even when she wasn't <laughs> super successful. Um, so yeah. So there's exceptions. Yeah. Um, so not that she doesn't have a spine. I mean, clearly she does. She's got to hold all that up. Um. <laughs> I, mean, I imagine that at this point, having reached levels of she might not be awful to people at this point. Like, yeah, 
I can't. Oh, you mean C- Cardi B? No, who? Cardi B. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? Yeah, Brandi Carlisle, I imagine. Brandi Carlisle. Sorry, like, I got it A backwards. wonderful person at this point where she's like achieved the stuff and probably grateful. And Maybe, maybe, maybe I not. Maybe she's still a miserable asshole. Okay, <laughs> let's go back to the other conversation. So yeah. when you were saying like, I went through this experience with this artist that I had all this with, and then yeah. you got this transformation out of, listening to her music and i i had this thought <clears throat> i don't i don't think you can get that kind of transformation with somebody who you don't have shit with fair so yeah. it makes me think about uh, a buddhist meditation called meta meditation not meta m-e-t-a it's m-e-t-t-a mm-hmm. short version this is one of the most like important meditations in in all of buddhism and it the short version is first you have to learn you have to train yourself to what they say cultivate the feeling of loving kindness or compassion is the word that they often right. translate it to but it, it means the feeling that you have towards someone that you love when you want something good to happen to them. That's the best way I've heard it described is it's that feeling. And you can feel that feeling a little or you can feel it a lot. And learning how to feel it really profoundly is a prerequisite to this meditation. But then the real work starts because the meditation is once you can generate that feeling, the first thing you do is you meditate and you, you bring up that feeling and then you think about someone that you love, someone that you care about. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's not even that you're like flowing that energy to that person, although you can imagine it that way. It's more just feeling the feeling and then holding that person in your mind. That's the exercise. That's the whole meditation. And it's usually pretty easy with someone that you love. Then the next step (laughs) is to do it with a total stranger. Yeah. So to practice the ability to cultivate this loving kindness sensation in your body and then bring to mind someone that you don't know from anybody. And the goal is to get to the point where there's no difference, where the yeah. feeling that you have is there's, there's no, oh, I don't know this person, so I feel differently about them. And then the real tough one, or maybe, maybe this isn't even the most tough one. The next one is you think about an enemy. But they, they explain that that just means someone you have shit with, right? like somebody you've got friction and baggage and whatever with. And same thing. You generate this feeling of loving kindness. You hold them in your mind. And it's hard. <laughs> it it, it kind of kills your heart boner, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> um, at first. Um, right. So there's a, a, a writer... Uh, he he wrote a book called 10% Happier. His name's Dan Harris. And he he got a chance to ask the Dalai Lama in an interview about this meditation. He said, I just, I, I need to understand, like, is the point, why am I doing this? Like, why am I doing this cultivation? Am I, am, is it about me trying to send loving feelings to my enemy? And um, the Dalai Lama got to respect somebody who really like has a clear understanding of this stuff. He says, no, 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 no. The meta meditation is 100% selfish. It's not for the other people. The other person is just a placeholder. It's anyone you have shit with when you bring up that feeling and then you bring them to mind, 
it's going to activate your neurology. It's going to activate all of these judgments and resistances and insecurities and fears and hurts and all of this stuff. And simply by staying in that feeling, your brain will start to rewire itself. So just to finish up, the next one is maybe even harder, which is you do it and you think about yourself. Right. You bring up the feeling of loving kindness and then you hold yourself in mind. And then the fifth step in the process is you do a body scan where you go from top to bottom or bottom to top and you just notice what's shifted in your body. So that story that you told made me think of that's kind of what you were doing. I know. Yeah. And I was aware the voice that kept over the lots of years tapping me on the shoulder. Two two things occurred to me. It's like, so remember when you were a hurt person and you said things and you behaved in ways that people thought they just decided you were a bitch. Remember all your asshole years? What if finding a way to show up and listen to this is a way of healing and forgiving yourself? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you want someone to be open enough to appreciate your art and get healing from it, even if you were an asshole, which you have been? We know this much, right? <laughs> and so I was like, mm-hmm, okay, I'm not ready. And then the other thing that felt interesting that happened is and it was it was happening as you were talking just now uh and i felt it and it was part of the like the pages full of things that are now songs what's interesting about her being able to sing the way she, she does and sing about what she sings about and in the way that she does it and that feeling very much like things that i have sung or written down or want to play or that sort of thing when I was playing music last, and it's been six years, I needed to take a break. There was a hurt there that happened. And I was just like, wait a second. Some of what I felt when I was singing and playing was that no one was singing and playing like me, that there was no place for a me. Here it is during all these years. I am not listening to this person who exists and is on Columbia or whatever, like feeling very, like I don't belong anywhere, which is kind of interesting because what ended up happening is when I went to the training in San Diego where you were on stage and like that training of NLP people Mm -hmm. was the first time I felt a belonging Mm. in a very long time. I didn't feel it in music. I didn't feel it in acting, didn't feel it in business school or businessy people, but NLP people began speaking a similar language. I'm like, Oh my God, I found my people. Uh, But it would have been interesting to have been listening to this person and had a different level of permission or less hurt around where are all the loud, brassy female vocalists? Why is everyone whispering? Why are people singing with this weird, dumb accent? Like, because there was I was ready to like bust out my guitar and like, "Ah!" and no one was fucking yodeling anymore on anything. No breaking of voices. Everybody was doing. Oh, do you remember the goddamn like whisper songs, like you'd go to shoegazer shows and everybody would fucking whisper and I'd want to clap, but nobody was like clapping. Maybe that, maybe their appreciation was like, mm, mm. like, I'm like, this song was fucking great. Why aren't we clapping? <sighs> so pent up. And why are all of the dudes making money? Just like whisper singing. Where's your breath? 
and it was driving me nuts because no one was singing that way except apparently she was and oops i missed it and you know so you asked me if i've ever experienced anything like that (laughs) and i'm gonna tie this back to what you just brought up yeah so um yes definitely (laughs) um uh, there's two examples. I think the earliest example that I had was before I got into personal development and whatnot. It was watching the movie Moulin Rouge. Mm-hmm. So I was a theater kid, um, musical theater specifically. And um, when I watched that movie, it was actually after the first time I watched it. It was a couple of years later when I was more distant from theater that I rewatched it and it was physically painful because I watched it and I was like, I want to be in this. I want to be doing this and I miss it immensely. And there there was no experience that I'd ever had of a feeling like that feeling that I had when I was doing music theater. Mm -hmm. Um, So after that, in the world of personal development, after my chosen career, um, there was two people in particular, uh, three, <laughs> uh, Tim Ferriss triggered me quite a bit when he came out, but not as much as he triggers some people. Yeah. But then there were two Brendan Burchard and Russell Brunson. Like Ooh. I have never wanted to punch anybody in the face <laughs> quite as hard as I wanted to punch those two guys. Yes. And I, ju- and it took me years of hearing other people say, Hey, you know, they've actually got some really great stuff. And then I was like, <laughs> and by the way, not self-aware enough to even know that I was doing that. I would just be like avoiding their material. Right. And then one day somehow I started listening to one of Brendan Burchard's things. And I was like, like an hour into this audio program, I was just like, God damn it. <laughs> I, I, I think he might actually give a shit about people and mm-hmm. he might actually have some really good stuff to say. And it might even be some stuff that I need to hear. Right. And it was really hard to swallow that pill. Um, I think that I boiled it down to um, a combination of I was jealousy, just straight up. I wanted to be doing that and I'm not and I'm jealous. And then I would just be like, no, I just don't think he's really. But then it was also just a lot of bad experiences that had really jaded me to think that anybody who's successful must not be actually a good or providing value that they're all tricksters and con artists. And while it might be a good percentage of them, um, it's not true. There are some people who are very successful who are actually successful because they are actually helping people and nobody's perfect. Everybody's got stuff and baggage and whatever. But more recently, this is the thing I was going to tie back into what you said. More recently, I had an experience where I read a book by one of my favorite hypnotists on the planet. His name's um, Anthony Jacquin. Mm-hmm. And um, he wrote a book called Reality is Plastic. And it's um, when I read it, I remember having the thought about a third of the way through the book. I was like, I don't think I need to write a book about hypnosis anymore. 
because <laughs> I thought this is better than the book I was going to write. Like he is hitting every single point that mm-hmm. I wanted to hit in a book. I would always thought one day I'm going to write a book about hypnosis. And I'm going to talk about my experience and my perspective on it. And then he wrote this book and I'm like, I don't have to do that anymore. And I didn't experience the same kind of jealousy. And I'm certainly not saying I never experience it or that I can't experience it in other situations. But I'm saying in this situation, I think what happened was I love hypnosis. I love doing it. I love experiencing it. And I love the field itself. Mm -hmm. And when I feel like I am a servant of this field. Like I'm trying to grow this thing. When I see someone else out there doing something good for the field, I'm like, great. So I had this thought that it's, that there's a perspective that's almost like there was music that you knew needed to be in the world. Yeah. And if someone else gives birth to it, it's still in the world. Mm Mm-hmm. It's definitely, uh, (laughs) I do, I do. I'm not going to say who the artist is, but there is another artist who has, uh, has moments of a past of being quite abrasive. And, and yet I had a different level of respect for that person, but I did have more exposure Hmm. to that person. And there's no effing way, even though that person has the same, sense of humor and a lot of like the ways that they were showing up in the world, they would like tell the same fucking jokes that I would, I could yell out the punchline from the back of the room. Uh, They even described one of our mutual musical friends the same fucking way I would as like, and she smells nice. I'm like, who says that? That's fucking weird. That's my word. Fine. You can have, you can say the same fucking whatever. It's cool. But what, but there was no way that I was going to be, that person yeah because that person um <laughs> you know there's just there wasn't enough like similarity similarity and they were doing the the lord's work mm. for music in a way that i could respect mm-hmm. and i mm-hmm. wasn't going to have the same access being a one of me so i don't know it felt it, it felt kind of different yeah, and that I, thought the music comes out is it still out there is not it doesn't take all the sting away. There's still something in there about like for me, it's like maybe I need to be doing like I still need to be doing my thing. I need to be contributing yeah. something. I think that's I just have had challenges. I've had challenges around the idea that there's really no there's really no competition that there's Mm. everyone's voice is made different. And we're all made of, you know, all of these different particles or whatnot for reasons that the world needed an Adrienne. And so this idea in, in our world of podcasting that, that, that our voices are made to, to project out there and connect with who we're meant to connect with. So I have some challenges with somebody starts writing a book that I was going to write. Uh, is it Jen Cicero or something like that? Cisnero. I don't really know how to say her name. I open uh, like you're a badass or you're a rock star or like whatever. I opened the book and I'd been thinking about a book to write and I opened the book and she's 
She's like, I'm a musician who became a life coach. And her first chapter is like, oh, and a comedian, right? Musician, comedian, life coach. And her first chapter is this is what the unconscious mind does. And I'm like, fuck you. Like the whole, the whole outline at the time. And which is going to, I can't, I'm not writing that book now, but like I'm having challenges. Uh, another artist, the time I was like, I'm just going to write this one woman show about my relationship with my mother and craziness and whether I'm going to be crazy. And then the artist is like, I read a thing, my, I type, type it to my best friend. And he's like, have you, have you seen the Willamette week, the article? And I look up and like craziness, mom, one woman show. Fine, fine whatever. Like, I feel like I'm in a race. Uh, and I don't always know how to just, just drop in and say yes to my artistry and do the thing and make the thing. Because oftentimes it does seem like somebody else is going to get there. Cause well, I know, think ideas are like that. Yeah. And a lot of comedians will say that they don't actually listen to a lot of comedy anymore because they can't. Yeah. Because if they listen to other people's comedy, they're like, shit, now I can't do that joke anymore. Where if they hadn't heard it, their joke would have evolved into something that's at least enough different that it's not the exact same joke. But just because you hear someone else's, it like, oh, now yeah. I can't do it anymore. And that they, in order to like protect the ideas that are coming through them, they have to like guard against what stuff they bring in. Yeah, I'm sure there's a there's a way to balance that, but um, yeah, I think, I, I think yeah. that's a real thing. Maria Bamford and I, she's fine. She's already got her platform. We yeah. came up with violent positivity around the same time. It's just like son of a biscuit. Mm-hmm. What? Anyway, so that's the thing. I will allow my unconscious mind to heal while I'm watching TV shows and movies in the next couple of few weeks. It's like how do we how do I get from inspiration to go and get more traction on stuff that I want to put in the world. Cause I like my voice. I want it out there without caring that somebody else has played the same four chords and you know, Oh, arpeggio. That's neat. Whatever. You know, did did you see soul? Yeah. Yeah. That was a good one about, I think the, like I, I liked one of the many deep messages in there was about like music is for, the experience of the music that like Mm -hmm. it's about this moment right now. It's not about who hears it or how much money you make from it or what impact that it has, that it's about the experience of being in the music. And I, I think about my dad that way. My, like my dad's never recorded anything. And like one day I would love to get a recording, like a, a CD of songs, just of him CD. Wow. (laughs) I'm old. A collection mm-hmm. of songs <laughs> um, because my dad is a, an awesome singer and guitar player and mm-hmm. he's never really been recorded ever. Um, and one day it won't be around anymore. Right. Um, but his music for my dad was about the state that everybody gets into in this moment. And like my dad would just pull out his guitar and we'd sing around the campfire at the house like not even camping just like we go outside and um that definitely gave me a perspective on music as like just a thing to participate in yeah um and it's tough when we've got that the the critical mind jumping in and being like but i'm not as successful as all these judgments and metrics and at some point i think 
in order to enjoy something, you have to be able to let that go and just like do it for the sake of doing it. Yeah. One of the things I love about today in this moment and these like new potential song starters, which I haven't had in a quite a while, is that one of the texts that I woke up to this morning was of this friend, this friend and I, we there were three of us who wrote a song together. I'd never written a song with other people. And I'd wanted to, to record with a funk bassist and a metal drummer. And at some point I'm saying it enough at guitar center. Somebody taps me on the shoulder. And is like, you got to meet these guys. These guys are kind of weird. They're doing a weird thing. You might dig it. So I meet these two guys at guitar center. I was working there and they're like, yeah, we're just working with new artists. I'm trying to do like, like write songs together. And we wrote this tune because uh, I, I'm like, I want to mix these genres together. Like, That's awesome. And so we were inspired by Shaka Khan. We listened to some Shaka Khan. We all like Foo Fighters. So we're trying to do some sort of like what happens if Shaka Khan or Gladys Knight decide to hire the Foo Fighters as a backup band and what do they yeah. create together? Yeah. And then there were some like topical things on my mind and some challenges that I wanted to do in a tune. And it took us a while to get this song together and we wrote it together. We like, they jammed it out and came up with an arrangement. And I just, I actually kept having a bunch of resistance prior to showing up. And then the moment we would be in the room, something magical would happen. We wrote these lyrics together. I always wanted a counter melody at some point in a song. And I think we'd had it mostly recorded. And then suddenly the counter melody over the like climax at the end of the song comes in. I'm like, oh, I'm going to sing this thing. It's awesome. There's harmony. And it just kept flowing and kicking ass. And so the first thing that I woke up to today was like, he sends a clip of himself watching our video back. And she's like, oh, I've got goosebumps. And I'm like, you know, I've actually made some cool shit. That's a great fucking song. Yeah, that's some <laughs> serendipitous timing as well, given <laughs> yeah. this is what you're in right now. Yeah. So that's that. That's my cool. check-in for where I'm at. It was well, you wanna you wanna talk about a pirate movie? I yes, I do. Indeed. So after I don't know, a month after uh I gave the assignment of watching this hidden i'm I'm gonna go out on a limb here and call it a hidden gem um of a pirate movie from the 90s called cutthroat island with gina davis and um it was a notorious box office failure yes um but i assigned that we should watch this after yes. watching long kiss goodnight and then uh you watched it immediately and yes. it's now been almost a month and i finally watched it and was um pleasantly surprised to find that my memory of it being a pretty fun adventure movie was correct or at least for me anyway i was okay. like oh this isn't a piece of garbage that i uh i thought was good like i watched 300 recently i introduced uh -huh. that to somebody and i was like oh yeah i remember really liking this movie and i was like oh 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 this is, this is a bad movie <laughs> like this is a really pretty dumb bad stupid movie yeah um visually stunning but uh um even like the themes if you stop and think about it don't even work and um but man it did just oh i liked it so much this one however i was like this is super fun yeah so can you i'll, I'll leave it there yeah, yeah. I mean, the best way to synopsize it, the best way to synopsize it for me is you got to talk about the context. 
So why was this movie so incredibly notoriously unsuccessful? It had like a, a significant budget and didn't make any of it back. And um, right. they spent a lot of it on explosions. Um, the short version is people were in a super pirate fatigue at that time. Like there was no nostalgia for pirates. Not that they'd had lots of pirate movies, but nope. that the the genre I, this is my theory anyway. The yeah. genre was played out. And this movie is a by the numbers pirate movie. It yes. is like every cliche of a pirate movie that you can think of. And and when you watch it, you're kind of like, I imagine at that time, people watching it and going like, I've seen this movie like five times before. Like all the different elements of it are just things pulled from other movies. It was but weirdly watching placed. It, the decade yeah, timing wise, you mean? Yes. Because well, maybe there was Robin Williams hook. Because yeah, yeah, parody things hadn't happened in a long while. Yeah. But it was then, just before the Pirates of Caribbean. It's like five well, years before that or something. Yeah, I think it's a little longer than that because okay. the, I think that's exactly my point is that at this time, this very formulaic, like by the numbers pirate movie, people were just like, blech. And then fast forward a little while and people had had a little bit more time to forget about pirates. <laughs> and uh, and then this one had the added Johnny Depp, like doing a weird Keith Richards thing. Yeah. And uh, and again, formulaic, but also had some supernatural elements, which this one didn't have any of. Nope. So um, so then pirates came back and then they just like rode that horse into the ground um, completely. But uh, this movie is in many ways, I think better than the pirate, even the first one, which the Pirates of the Caribbean first movies is pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, yeah, I have lots more thoughts, but I want to stop and so the, the summary the... of it is it's just a pirate movie. It's like okay, there's yeah. a lost treasure and there's a map and they got to go find it and that's fucking it. <laughs> See, that's helpful. So in pirate world, there's always, there seems to be some tropes, right? Yeah. yeah tropes yeah. are it's hidden treasure that you search for all, all your life. It feels very mm -hmm. Moby Dickish that way. Like mm -hmm, it's perfect, mm -hmm. uh, lifelong. And, uh, and then we're just like pirate movie. If they say that, oh, yeah, there's a treasure and it's the such and such and forth treasure. Yeah. And, it's, and you're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. We're just supposed to buy that. That's totally worth whatever happens yeah, yeah 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 all of the things that you have to go through if you're searching your whole life for the thing mm -hmm. are, yeah totally we're just but like already pirate movie equals buy-in to give a shit about that which is an interesting it's an interesting trope because uh okay so this particular one there's a there's a there's a woman who is the daughter of a, a pirate who has two brothers and they are connected to this massive treasure somehow. The pirate captain. Pirate captain is her father. Yes. But there are three different like brothers who are not necessarily uh, getting along at this point in their lives. And they all sort of have a piece of this map or something for this massively huge uh, rumored epic treasure. And so she gets sort of rankled into chasing it down for reasons mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and it, it kind of doesn't matter the why and the what for because insert pirate movie here yeah so yeah. here's here's where i start having because it's my job doing it like watching this movie like it's my job to have 
transformational, thematic, interesting things happen. So right away, the top of the scene, and it's cool, Gina Davis, female pirate. I don't remember. There actually is an Annie something from Ireland who was like an epic female pirate 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 that's what they're called (laughs) can i jump in here for a second yeah so part of the reason i watched i brought this one up is because we watched long kiss goodnight and i was like gina davis is amazing she was in a pirate movie and my girlfriend faye was like there's a pirate movie i haven't seen so my girlfriend used to work on tall ships okay um like for extended periods of time she would like have you know, climb and like hoist the mainsail and like sit in the crow's nest. And like, she spent time on there and was like, sometimes they would dress up as pirates if kids were coming and stuff. So she is, and she knew a lot about the history of pirates. And one of the things that she loved about this is she's like, there are lots of stories about super badass empowered female pirates. And one of the things we loved about this movie was how little emphasis was put on her being female yep that it's like this story you could flip the gender and almost every single thing would work and it's a pretty progressive movie for the 90s yeah well i dig that when people don't make a thing a thing yeah i think we were talking about this just by ourselves but it's come up in the show where i just don't like things to be heavy-handed about yeah 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 yeah, yeah. everybody's like oh my gosh it's just a hundred percent I have breasts and I am also a pirate. Fuck you. You know, like none of that happened. Yeah. No no second guessing, just kicking ass. Right. First moment in this movie. Something her. So her father, something about her father. Gets into this kerfuffle with the main villain guy. His brother. Okay. Uh. And he's drop. He like drops off the ship. He's got like an anchor. Does the father choose to jump off the ship with an anchor tied to his foot or something like that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then she jumps in after him. And I had this like jolt happen. And I was just like, fucking lineage and trauma. Like, Mm. let your father go down with his own fucking baggage. Why is this your problem? Like if she jumps in and she is now also being pulled under, he's been like shot and stabbed. And he's like, I'm going under, leave me, let me go. And she doesn't cause family. Right. And so she is being sunk under. And I'm like, the theme of your, like the lineage of the BS that your parents don't heal and their parents don't heal that you're pulled under with like, Oh, how do we shake free from the <laughs> the weights and anchors of our of our parents? That is an interesting interpretation of that moment. I think when you said I'm be like uh I have to go save him because family. Um <laughs> the the difference in the way that I interpreted that scene was I thought I have to go save him because I, love I think was the right. <laughs> I think that I was like, oh, no, she loves her father. And that's why she wants to save him. And and uh, it's a very interesting thing because the whole thrust of the first bit yeah. of the movie is that he's like, I cut off my the scalp and now take on my quest. Yeah. For this. Tra- like, 
it's an interesting responsibility to now have his enemies and his quest and and maybe there's a good payoff for that i don't know it's just yeah. th- that first moment is like maybe she has her own adventures that she'd like mm-hmm. to be doing i don't know but mm-hmm. she's like you are now the captain of my ship and na, 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 and all that's supposed to work out it's very interesting like the scene of him dragging her with him yeah yeah, I never got the impression that she was like, we have to go find this because it's my father's legacy. I always got the impression throughout the whole thing that she's like, we have to go find this because I want fucking money. I want yes. treasure and I yes. want to be rich. And my father had this on his scalp and I fucking cut it off because and that that is not a particularly easy thing probably to do to someone <laughs> that you love. Um, and she's like, yeah, I fucking did it. They don't show it because the movie's yeah. like PG, but <laughs> they're like, yeah, I'm going to carry around my father's scalp because that's how much I want treasure. So right. I, I felt like it was her quest at that point. Yeah. Well, so that's the thing that I, that I am actually thematically curious about, because I know that you've talked about like, so the thing for me about pirates and treasure that like, I, I don't think I give a shit. Like my dad loves um, like his generation is super like treasure map and treasure get the thing. And like, and he likes to go rock hounding now. And he watches shows where they're finding gold. So like the gold rush, the gold digging, the, all of that is totally culturally. Woohoo. Space is one of those two fucking put things on planets. Nah. And I'm not into that, but I was like, but the, the theme around this, there is for me, something that I am willing to quest right, my right, entire right, life exactly. for that is precious to me. Yeah. The metaphor of the pirate journey of like sailing overseas, killing people for willing to die for something. To find treasure. Right. What is the treasure? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That theme kept popping up. And I was I was like, like part of the conceit that one has to buy into is like, oh, cool. Yeah. You know, seasickness, being killed, uh, snakes dropping from things, falling off of cliffs and shit. Also, <laughs> um, quick mud, quick. Oh, <laughs> I when the quicksand part happened, I was just like, oh, my God, it's quicksand. <laughs> It's so adorable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Woo! To like go through all of that for this like shiny shit that you have to like lug and carry out. Maybe it's useful, but then you're also a target. I don't know. So I'm just like, no, 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 Adrian. It's a pirate movie. The treasure's important. We're supposed to care. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rah, rah. And I kept wondering. I wonder for each person what, what, what their quest is. What, yeah. what quest? I, and then some people feel it, and some people don't. This, this thing that they would be willing to strive that much for. Well, yeah, I, I, I Joseph Campbell, that shit. Yeah. <laughs> and um, for me, like the, the abstraction is what Campbell calls bliss. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we've talked about this lots, but I, I think that with treasure specifically, like if you, if you think about it archetypally, I think it's about, it's a lot about freedom. Mm-hmm. Like pirate stories are number one, you're a swashbuckling independent. I am free from everything. Like it's a kind of cowboy kind of thing. Yeah, no but rules. even more than that, it's like I'm outside the law, I'm outside of society and civilization. And um 
And then the treasure is about freedom. It, that's the, what it symbolically represents is when, when I, I imagine pirate stories being passed around. And um, even in this movie, there's a guy who's following them around writing stories about pirates so people can read them. And I imagine part of the fantasy there is like winning the lottery. It's like, yeah. well, then I could do anything I want. Um, you know, I can buy a farm or go live luxurious somewhere or travel or or whatever it is that the person wants to do with the money. But it's ultimately about the freedom that that would create for people, I think, is the is part of the fantasy. Now, Ooh, that's not necessarily that what the bliss the thing is always about. Yeah. Well, in this case, there's this moment where they all have like the ending. They all have this shit ton of treasure. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, now you have all of it. So if the quest of this treasure was about now you can go be a farmer and I can go do this other thing. Or if the journey was what was like being a pirate is the reason it's is not the, reason, the treasure. Yeah. yeah, that's the ending. And I'm just like, well, that makes some sense to me that the whole going on the quest. That's the yeah. thing that's fun. Let's go find another treasure now because it isn't really about the treasure. It's about the quest yeah so um okay I, I, can we go back to the feminist conversation the, the progressiveness <laughs> so yeah. uh, this was another point that, and it's mostly a joke but um we were noticing this and she we paused and she was talking about female pirates and we were talking about how like interesting the the story was that it didn't make like a big deal out of it and there's even a section where she's like pulling something out of her undergarments and mm -hmm. they make a joke where she's like, I, I need to show you this. And then the, the guy, uh, the prisoner guy is like, oh, I, I've seen one. And I was like, even that joke, which is yeah. sexual in nature, you could flip that. He could be right. a female saying I've seen one. And it would be the same. Like, there's so much of that that it, it was. So then as I'm thinking this thought, I was like, I wonder if this movie would pass the Bechtel test. So just okay. in case anybody following doesn't know, the Bechtel test is a test uh, that is shocking how many movies don't pass it. But it simply means in your movie, are there two female characters who have a conversation with each other that isn't about a man? Mm -hmm. That's how you pass the Bechtel test. And it's crazy how many movies don't have that now if you flip it and you're like how many men are in movies that have a conversation with each other that is not about a woman it's like every fucking movie every fucking movie passes whatever that test would be called but it doesn't do the flip yeah. <laughs> so I thought yeah are there two women that have a conversation with each other well yeah the monkey so, is a female this, no 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 this is it i had that thought and literally the next line was her walking up to a female whore and propositioning her. <laughs> she walks up to the prostitute and uh -huh. is like, how much? And the, the woman is like, excuse me? And, and then she ends up taking her clothes like she pays her for her clothes so she yeah. can infiltrate as a prostitute. Right. But just like. I wonder if this will pass the Bechtel test. And then her, it's a, it was a joke moment, but her propositioning a female, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that passes the Bechtel test. <laughs> like, that is definitely two females having a conversation that is not about a man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. It's so good. Uh, it was, I yeah. also do love that Matthew Modine in this movie is 
both damsel in distress, but also yeah, yes, that was another thing we we mentioned is he plays the damsel in distress and she is just badass and it's it's believable like yeah. I, I i buy it the sword fighting was nothing to write home about but yeah. i guess in the 90s none of the sword fighting was really that impressive in any i was movies. really shocked for instance at the same time lucy lawless is sword fighting on xena and yeah. if you watch lucy she swords fights like a tennis player and i'm like has no way and and Gina Davis was quite athletic in um, the the baseball movie. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. very interesting. I was like, did no one know how to sword fight? Some of these are not that. That's what I'm wondering is like, uh, I mean, maybe they just didn't prioritize it or or they didn't understand the appeal of having your actors do their own stunts like that hadn't clicked. But like, think about because there's there's another parallel I want to draw between this yeah. and The Princess Bride. Sure. So The Princess Bride has arguably one of the most legendary several of the most legendary sword fights in any movies ever they are the choreography the swordsmanship the stunts everything about it is uh, 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 they still very few things have ever topped it right and um that happened before this movie so Mm -hmm. Clearly sword fighting and and then look at Hong Kong cinema. So in the eighties, they were doing sword fights that that don't look human. Um, There's also Robin Hood with um, Kevin Costner. And you've also got three Musketeers came out. And were those good sword fighting? I don't really remember. In the nineties, good sword fighting. And then what was the other one that I just flashed on? (laughs) Men in tights was uh, the same guy. Yeah. Yeah. With the little, there was something in that time period hmm. that had good. Oh, Lancelot, Richard Gere as Lancelot in that um, first night was around yeah, my, the same time. I, I haven't seen a lot of those, but my recollection of them was that I felt like the sword fighting was still pretty lame and a lot of that stuff, too. Hmm. But I, I could be wrong. Like, I really don't remember. But that was another point I was going to make. I yeah. thought it was really interesting that. Um, damn it. What's what's the Matthew Modine? Yeah. Matthew Modine and. Carrie Elways from Princess Bride are both cast as Errol Flynn. Fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Errol Flynn was like the the swashbuckling, blonde, swashbuckling pirate with a goatee. Yes. And they literally cast both those actors because they're like, you're a dead ringer for, Ma- for, uh, <laughs> for um, who did I just, Errol Flynn. Yeah. And, uh, I, and when I watched this, I didn't know that when I watched it before, but I'm like, oh. Oh, that's why he looks so much like Wesley from <laughs> the Princess Bride. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, what are some of my other points about this movie? So I really like your 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 point on the um treasure and the the appeal of the pirate quest is yeah. to go out and and then the the moral of the story being no, 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 it's the journey, not the treasure. It's the quest that that is truly fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of it, was there any other <laughs> deep points? Do you remember? Okay, I remember here, I put some notes. Here's, here's some notes too. Okay. So there, apparently in the pirate trope, it's really important to suddenly have to have a fight at the top mast 
Oh, right. When they were climbing up, I was just like, Who's climbing? Yes, this of is of course. This they is have dumb. to go Why up there. Because it's in the rule. You have yeah. to find up there. They didn't naturally find themselves up there. They're just no. like climbing for dumb. Okay, that- now you guys climb up the... <laughs> <laughs> but here's what's here's what's an interesting thing with villains okay so so treasure money i want all the money we just gonna buy into they want that or in a bunch of the different marvel movies like people want more power that was what hulk yeah the the hulk with uh norton the the guy i feel power and now that i feel power i want even more power and we're like yeah of course it makes sense everybody's motivated by what so here's what's really funny to me. Uh, the her uncle yeah. is is like, join me. Like, I have this evil quest and it is awesome. Let's join together and we can take on the world. And I'm like, what? This yeah. thing that keeps happening, this theme of like, I am evil. I have been trying to kill you for the last hour. Join me to be evil on this quest together yeah. and i was like that keeps happening that is a theme it must mean do people really feel this uh i have been willing to kill you for a really long time but instead of killing you and i'm i'm and it's all they're like almost winning theoretically in this position where they're like super apparently lonely and really want to <laughs> Well, okay, so it's even it's even more ridiculous. Not only has he been trying to kill her, he has successfully killed a number of her very close friends. Yes. Also, at this point in the story, his entire crew is dead. Yeah. He's alone. Her crew is fine. His ship is on fire and about to blow up. And he's like, join me. <laughs> and you're like, um, I don't think you understand the nature of the situation right now. <laughs> but but what's so funny to me is that's happened yeah. in a lot of movies. And I don't know if it's the villain realizes that they're losing, but there's some- I like your lonely point. I think that's <laughs> I think that's the best is that deep down they're revealing that they're like, I want a friend. <laughs> Being this awful is really hard and alone. It's lonely. Yeah. yeah. I think I think the funny thing is I just watched um, Hobbs and Shaw, and I haven't seen all. Of, <laughs> I haven't seen all of the like sixty seconds or the car movies or the Gone and the whatnots. The, Fast the, and the, Furious the is the yeah. phrase you're looking Fast for. Fast and Furious, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I know the two characters are from those movies, yeah. but but the villain in there is like, we want you to join us. And I'm like, what? Yeah, you're a super robot human. Why were you, what? <laughs> <laughs> Just come with, come with us. Cause we need more of you. I think it's, uh, I think it's from Joseph Campbell's monomyth. Okay. And it is parallel to the last temptation of Christ. Oh, and it's part of the hero's journey that there is a point at which the hero is tempted mm-hmm. by the devil, so to speak. Okay. And um, and they write it into scripts because it's like thematically there's a there's a thing. It's a it's an opportunity for the hero to prove their purity. Sure. To prove their righteousness, to prove that even in the face of the temptation for evil as an easy way out, they won't take it. And it's yeah. in that in this context, it doesn't make any sense. And it's shoehorned in there. 
Um, there was a lot of 90s stuff that was adorable. Yeah. Like the, the, at one point, somebody has a musket that has like 13 barrels. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's all these stupid fucking gadgets that are like, that's not. And and like my favorite one is the villain's sword is serrated like a steak knife. Yeah. And, and I'm like, hey, that might look cool. But do you know why you never see swords like that? Because it's a stupid idea. They've been inventing swords for thousands of years and they don't make them like that because it doesn't work. Get stuck. Get stuck. And exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. No, that's my favorite. My favorite point. Join me. We'll take on the world. Yep. Yep. Why is this a thing? Are you super lonely, uncle? What's going on for you? Yeah. Should we hug it out and I'll stab you? Yeah, we you and I were having a conversation recently um, about the idea of like becoming aware of your triggers that pull you out of stories. Yeah. And um, I mentioned that one of them for me is like uh, guns that have too many bullets. Uh huh. It's like I know a little bit about guns. And when I see a, a handgun that I know holds like six or eight bullets and they fire it 15 times without reloading, it's annoying. <laughs> and yeah. it triggers a little thing that's like, <sighs> and then when people are accurate about it, I'm like, hey, I appreciate that. Like you put a little effort into making this look realistic. Totally. Um, watching movies with my girlfriend is so good for my. For exercising the um, the enlightened couch potato muscle, the sure. surrender of the critical faculty, because she knows a lot about boats. She knows a lot about <laughs> cannons. She knows a lot about pirates. And she was like, I am loving this. And, oh. uh, and all of its inaccuracies do not take me out of it at all because it's delightful. And it's like, I don't I don't care that cannonballs don't explode it's fine it's fine yeah. it, you know there's big huge explosions i like fire this is fun and i like, yeah. <laughs> i just remembered you telling me that they had spent so much fucking money to build these real fucking ships yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and then and then I was just thinking about the things that we know now about shooting at different angles to make things really, really exciting. And there's a uh-huh. part of the movie where there's just two boats and they're right fucking next to them. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. And it's the most hilariously boring. I was like, is this real? They're like, it, it cracks me up when like, like battles, you like have all of these strategies to just like walk out to the line and just start stabbing each other. Yeah. Like, that doesn't yeah. seem like the best way to do this. Well, no, that's one of the moments when she laughed and said, I'm enjoying this in spite of its ridiculous inaccuracies. Cause like that is not how ships actually do battle. Like that's so stupid. Why would you do that? I hope we have more bullets than you. And then our boat stays up. Like, the whole point, I guess, in pirate movies is you like you keep shooting each other and you get closer and closer and then you board the other ship. She's like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And are they how are they both afloat? Are they both afloat? Yeah. How does this even work? They're yeah. like 20 feet away from each other. <laughs> and then the, their ship is fine. They don't even show any of the aftermath. Also, that's because uh, at least one of those two ships is an antique. So you'll notice that when the bomb, when like explosions go off of it, you can see that it's not actually the ship that it's something on the deck of the ship that they have exploding over the edge uh-huh. because they're like, you can't blow up this ship. It's like, 
old. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, that was pretty great. Because it just, it may as well, they may as well have cut to two boats in a bathtub and somebody <laughs> going pew, 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 because it's just right here. So adorable. Yes, and it was adorable. It. And, and like, there's something to be said, and then I got to go. There's yeah. something to be said for formulaic. Because when people say, oh, it's so formulaic. Yeah, but there's a formula for a reason. Yeah. And sometimes when you see something that is like by the numbers formulaic, but they do it well, that to me is what I liked about this movie. I was like, this is, I would call it the quintessential pirate movie, which is that uh, a lot of people will probably argue that point. Sure. But I would say that it, it is not original but in that way, they maybe did what lots of other pirate movies have done better. And then it didn't have that added Johnny Depp element. <laughs> so in that sense, because <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean is, a, is more than a pirate movie. It's a yes. supernatural pirate movie with a lot of weird-ass stuff thrown. It's silly and in a lot of ways. weird healing themes, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one is like, no, no, no. This is, this is what it looks like if you make a... Okay, what are all the elements of a pirate movie? This, 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 this. Okay, we're going to do all of them. <laughs> we're going to get them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I enjoyed it. I, I had a lot of fun. And um, I think your theme about treasure is the deepest point that I think we can take from this. And yeah. that, that uh, final moment of everyone deciding that the quest is the point. The, yeah. The journey to the treasure is more valuable than the treasure itself. Yeah. And I think you and Liz Gilbert, Elizabeth Gilbert, have both said that each one of us in each one of us is a treasure. And our life's quest is to unlock and uncover the map to um, unlocking and discovering our own treasure that is always in a, inside us. Ooh. Ooh. And on that note. Neat little bow. <laughs> Fabulous. This was great. Um, TV deeply, everyone. Yes. Thanks for maybe we'll see you next week. <laughs> have a good one. I say maybe. Uh, we'll have to talk about what we're going to do next time, okay? That's fair. We'll do that. All right. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye